Hello, I'm Jeff Smith, and welcome to The Secrets of Success. Throughout my life, I've been fascinated by one single question, and it's how do successful people become successful? What is it that makes that big difference in our lives? Over the last 40 years, I've interviewed rich people, famous people, and many millionaires to find out their secrets of success, and I want to share them here with you. Of course, success is not always about money. And in these programs, I'm looking at many different success stories from people in all walks of life. I want to find out what makes them tick, how they overcame adversity to keep on going when times got tough, and I want to extract those magical nuggets of wisdom so that you too can implement the secrets of success into your own life. In today's episode, I'm talking with Beate Shellet. Beate is a growth architect and founder of The Women's Code. She creates strategies, designs process maps and blueprints for visionaries and leaders who want to maximize their profits and scale their impact. A first-generation immigrant who found herself $135,000 in debt as a single parent, she bootstrapped her passion for photography into a highly successful global business and eventually sold it to, get this, Bill Gates in a multi-million dollar deal. Beate is one of 100 top global thought leaders in 2021 by PeopleHam and one of 50 must-follow women entrepreneurs in HuffPost. She's the author of number one best-selling Amazon, Happy Woman, Happy World, How to Grow from Overwhelmed to Awesome, a book that even Brian Tracy calls a handbook for every woman who wants health, success and a fulfilling career. This is going to be an incredible story of rags to riches and finding your purpose in life. So let's bring in the amazing woman herself. Welcome to the show, B.H. Chalette. Thank you so much, Jeff. I am so excited to be here. I feel like I'm in a stadium full of, uh, you know, full of an audience applauding and screaming at the top of their toes. Can't wait to share the information. <laughs> That's exactly where you are. It's a worldwide stadium. It's wonderful what technology can do nowadays, though, huh? Well, it's wonderful it. to have you on the show. You look amazing as ever. We do know each other. So how are you today? You know, I'm I'm really good. I'm looking forward to, you know, talking about some of the things that we see as trends, what's happening in the industry, business owners, entrepreneurs, coaches, consultants, experts, thought leaders, visionaries, what is happening, uh, what do we need to know, what do we need to watch out for as we go forward and sharing, as always, some information that, you know, maybe they'll find helpful to take home from our experience and you know how good is it to be here in the room with you yeah absolutely well i say we know each other so we've been in a mastermind where we shared the room with a few people and kind of gravitated to each other but i don't know much about being the person so to get us going i mean yes i do know what about i do know what I do want to know about that deal <laughs> <laughs> with Bill Gates and that multi-million dollar deal. But before we do that, 
I want to find out about Morbier. So where were you born? What was life like for you as a child? And what were your dreams and aspirations as you were growing up? Yeah, so so I originally am from Germany, and um, now I live in the United States. I have dual citizenship, which I absolutely love, and I've been in you know in in sort of my early days, childhood. You know, I think we were pretty classic middle class, mom homemaker, uh, dad worked at a company that he eventually became the CEO for, and. Uh, throughout my childhood, I, I remember that, you know, when I was very little, it was it was all good. Then when I turned out to be a teenager, things were really, really bad. And I, I moved out when I was 16. <laughs> but um, if I think about what some of the pieces were, is I remember that when my dad oftentimes would have to go on the weekend to go to the office. And I mean, back then I didn't know why or what that all meant, but I did like to go to the office with him. And I remember when we walked in on like a Saturday, the janitor was there and my dad would say, hey, James, you know, how's it going today? And then James says, I'm, I'm very good, Mr. Kiesel. How, how are you? And, you know, my dad had a conversation. My dad said to me, um, I want you to remember one thing that if you ever run an organization, you need to make sure that you take care of all the people because from the janitor to to your board of directors, everybody's needed to run an organization properly because if this person does not do their job, the other people are not going to be happy. And that sort of was my first um, first lesson in entrepreneurship. Or yeah, in, wonderful start, wonderful foundations. In leadership, yeah. Yeah, and and that's it. And then from from living in Germany, I then you know moved out when I was sixteen. I wasn't very smart, or I was, I believed Jeff that I wasn't very smart because I wasn't very good at taking existing material, remembering it, regurgitating it, so that I would get good grades. So at best, I was mediocre. At, at best, right? Mm -hmm. And then I moved to Munich. I became a photographer. I went to photography school. And that's when really my creative career started. Okay. So things were not good and you had to leave home at 16. What happened? Can you share? Yeah, I mean, this is something that I don't always uh, talk about because my mother is still alive, but my mother has mental mental issues uh which i'm sure has a lot to do with her growing up in world war ii and that whole generation and what they had to endure which just was something that never was talked about there was no mental health you know once the war was over and they grew up in the war she lost her father in the war i think a lot of this generation just um took all of what happened the trauma and put it under the rug and then never dealt with it but what happens is when you do that, which we know now today, is it's a ticking time bomb. And then the anger and the depression and the moodiness and the, um, you know, the unpredictable temper that my mother displayed toward me just made my life basically a living hell. I remember there was an instant when Jeff, when, you know, I, I was 12 and I I had gone on on a date with a really cute boy and then he kissed me on the lips. And then I remember I came home and I'm like, oh, my God, you know, it's like today has been like an amazing day. You know, I got my first kiss. And before I knew it, I got whacked. 
uh, and, you know, and, 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 uh, and told a lot of really terrible things uh, because I had done something so frivolous, which basically everybody else did. Right. Uh, And so, so that was what a lot of my childhood was about is to having to grow up very quickly. My dad being a CEO, my dad being traveling extensively, my dad not being at home. We found out later that my dad had girlfriends and affairs and, you know, because he couldn't tolerate the situation at home. So he, he, he had found his own escape, Um, you know, and I don't blame him for that, but that means that he left us uh, to fight with, you know, for, with the demons that he called uh, without really adequate help. And I think that this, these lessons of my, my teenage years or my, you know, now maybe I'll call it better the early adulthood because I had to grow up at, at, at 12 pretty quickly uh, after after it had gotten so bad that I had attempted a suicide attempt, which failed because my parents didn't have sleeping pills. So, I mean, even if I wanted to kill myself, I was unable to because, you know, so I, I went to the bathroom, I locked myself in, you know, and I wanted to take pills and they don't even have pills. So that's that's um, how boring my family was. <laughs> but... <laughs> But looking looking back, you know, even the admission that that was a suicide attempt, because would I have done that if there would have been something, you bet I would have. But even coming to that realization that I was a victim of abuse, that, my God, I, I think I'm just now, you know, all these years, these decades later at a point where I even look at that from that perspective and say, yeah, I've I've been severely abused verbally, physically, and more verbally than physically. But I did get smacked and uh, by somebody who was very mentally unstable that drove me to a suicide attempt. I am a, I'm a, I'm a survivor. And that sounds really terrible when you say that, because it, it puts you in a position that I really didn't want to be in where I was I don't know how to say that, Jeff, but where I was almost um, at the mercy of of somebody else. And I think that really is what drove me in my life to take charge and to be the boss and be in control. So nobody ever could do something like this to me again. And I was again in a helpless situation. Now, all the therapy I pay for now to get out of that so that I can be in, you know, loving and meaningful relationships. That's a whole different story. <laughs> yeah, I I can really relate to that. I mean, I had a lovely mom and dad. They 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 were great, but I was physically abused as a kid, not by my parents. But uh, I managed to escape that when I was fourteen. But you lived, you lived there until you were sixteen, so you obviously had enough. How old were you at this suicide attempt? Twelve. Twelve. Wow. Wow. So at 16, you think, I can't do anything. I'm done. What did you do? Yeah, I mean, it, it comes to a point where at 12, I had to make the decision. You know, my dad, my dad came home. My sister had understood the severity of the situation. She said to my dad, some, some really bad went, went, went down. Um, and my dad took me out of the bathroom and he said, no matter what you want to do or uh, desire in life, I'll always support you, no matter how crazy it will be. And he and he did make good on that promise. And 
I realized at that point that I needed to really be in charge of where I was going because none of this other stuff was going to support me. And so from 12 to 16, I think we went through this intense period of depression, struggling with figuring out who I was, what I needed to do to survive, and figuring out somehow what the skills were I needed to get out. And so when I applied for, you know, I was in, in Germany, there's three different school systems. There's a the gymnasium and there's the middle school and then there is the lower level. So I was in the middle school. I wasn't smart enough to go in the higher school, which turned out really well for me looking back. But that also gave me the stamp as the dumb one in the family. And so I was done with school when I was 16. And then I applied for places that were not in the city that I lived in, that were somewhere else because I knew I needed to get out. And so that um, that photography school was in Munich. And so I was accepted. And then I packed up, I think, two weeks before my 17th birthday, I moved out. Okay. So why photography? I... I thought that in the aptitude test, now, now, you know Germans, Jeff, and you know that Germans take things very seriously. Very seriously, yes. Very seriously. <laughs> so there's this aptitude test that we do in school, and it's like 16 pages long, and it just goes on and on and on. Do you like being outside? Yes, I do. Are you afraid of heights? No, I'm not. Are you, are you worried about physical labor? No, I'm not. You know, I'm strong. You know, this sounds actually kind of good. And as I'm going through this aptitude test, the results of the test said, <clears throat> and you'll never see this coming, Jeff. <laughs> a roofer. A roofer. <laughs> <laughs> okay so this beautiful young lady yep you should be a roofer a roofer there yeah. you go so so, so so now i'm looking at this test i'm looking at her and i'm going like are you freaking serious and <laughs> and, and 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 that's when i started to doubt that these kinds of things would relate to me in 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 in, in any way then she said so, to me, so well... So I, I take it you did not want to be a roofer. That was not your calling, I gather. It's not my calling. And, and for any roofer uh, who, who is listening to this, you know, God bless your heart, but it just wasn't my calling. <laughs> it's just not for it was, you. <laughs> it, was not my, it was not my calling. And so she says to me, well, what else do you want to do? And I said, um, I want to be a textile designer. Somebody's got to design all these beautiful, you know, fabrics and patterns and she goes oh there's so many applicants such such few jobs what else would you like to be i said oh i got it i want to be a jewelry designer i mean that looks like fun to you know make the gold bracelets and the earrings and come up with these designs and she goes ah you know with so many applicants, such few jobs. What else would you like to be? I said, oh, I got it. I want to be a photographer. And then she goes, there's so many applicants and such few jobs. Why don't you want to be a secretary? <laughs> or a scaffolder. <laughs> I mean, I mean, and, 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 and that was that for me. And then I said, 
you're not helpful. And then I just pursued and applied to photography school and I got accepted. And, and that's when, when it started, because I always felt that I was a real, that I was a creative or want to do creative things only to find out that that is only partially true. Okay. You'll have to expand on that then. Yes, cliffhanger, right? Yeah. So um, <laughs> as I go through photography school, once again, I'm unbelievably mediocre. So I have my I have my report card for photography school. And it says in every single subject, it says mediocre, 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 oh, mediocre, it actually mediocre. Said that, huh? Oh, it, it, yeah. I mean, you know, so so the grades are from one to six in Germany, and one is excellent, and six is failing, and I had a three. Okay. So I was I was literally mediocre in everything. So I looked at this, and I love photography, and I think I was a decent photographer, but I also realized that in order to have a style, or in order to be really good in the creative arts you have to become a person with a viewpoint. And I realized that that was going to take time and effort. And naturally, I was better at the business side behind the creativity. So that became very clear very quickly that um, the systems and, you know, how to pack things and what needed to be done and the production schedule and who needed to be at what time where, that that became very, very natural. And I did not want to be a photographer that was a freelancer. So I applied for, for positions as a full-time positions. And I became an intern at a magazine, which was very comparable to when Face, ID, Blitz, Arena, when those were like the, the cool magazine. So we did like the German counterpart of it and it was called Wiener Magazine, you know, really stupid name, but it came out of Vienna and there was a magazine in Vienna that was called Wiener. And then, so we brought that to, uh, to Germany and I was in that team and then I became a photo editor. And then from there on, I went on to Elle Magazine in Germany where I was 23 and I'm running the photo department of Elle Magazine. And I got like the cushiony, nice job in, with again, with a bunch of crazies dealing with creative people, but doing the business side of things. And that's, um, that's when I decided it was time to, to do something different, Jeff. So what happened, and I, I think this is kind of an important lesson to point out what happens in life sometimes is when you are getting a lot of power very quickly and you're very young, that you get to a point where you realize that people will do anything for you because of the position that you are in, not because of you. And when I realized that people were nice to me and they were inviting me to dinners and they brought me gifts, it was because I was a photo editor at Elle magazine. It wasn't because I was a great person. I still didn't like myself at that time. You know, I was, remember, I, you know, had to become something that I, I naturally wasn't to escape. And now I realize that it's time for me to start looking into who I am. And the reason this happened is because my dad got fired. There is a, in, in, uh, in Germany, when you have a board, there is a process where you call the uh, the trust question. And so if there's a vote, 
And the question goes something like, who here trusts our CEO? And if you are not trusted, you automatically get fired. Yeah, votes so of no did, confidence. Votes of no, thank you. Yeah. Votes of no confidence. And so that happened to my dad and he got fired. And I looked at him and I looked at myself and I'm like, ooh, I know exactly where I'm going. And I did not want that. Okay. I'm going to hold you there, if I may. I want to backtrack a little. So your interest in photography, you needed to find a style. You didn't have a style. You needed to find one. So in your early days of photography, what did you like? Was it portraiture? Was it landscapes? Was it still life? So where was your head at that time? Mostly people. I did a lot of uh, photography at events and photographing people at meetings and, uh, uh, you know, that's kind of, you know, I was more a people photographer than anything else. So is this uh, like a street photography? Is it portraiture? Is it No, mostly in- events. Okay. Invents. Okay. Yeah, okay. Events. I get that. Okay. So moving on to L Magazine then, what kind of photography were you doing with L Magazine? I was not doing photography. I was a photo editor. Photo so editor. I was, okay. uh, yeah. So, so at that point I, I started to uh, build the photo department for L magazine in Germany because they just had launched. And my job was to, you know, to hire not the fashion photographers, the art director did that, but to do, make sure that we had photos for all the other pages and all the other uh, pieces in the magazine you know, ordering portfolios for review, returning them, making sure we knew who the happening photographers were, having photography samples. I mean, this was way before the internet. I mean, there was no, you couldn't, you couldn't go to www, show me your photography portfolio site.com yet, none of this. So we had them ship us stuff and then we looked at things and we had to return them. So that was what a photo editor did back in those days. Okay. And what kind of photographs were you working on then? Um, anything from, you know, anything but fashion. So we did a lot of interviews for celebrities and we did a beauty, beauty photography, articles on books, on events, on, you know, who did what. I mean, like all the stuff that you read in a fashion magazine that is relating around what looks good, feels good, and trends. Yeah, yeah. So and my you, job was to get all the photos in. Yeah, so you, you were finding the correct photographs to match with the article that was written. Yes, a yeah. lot of that, yes. Yeah, awesome. Okay. So your dad gets fired. You think, okay, this is not for me. So what's going through your head now then? And you don't know who you are yet. And you don't even like yourself yet. <sighs> Man, so... Let's see if we can untangle all of that then. Yeah, so 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 now with that first real epiphany of saying this I know I can achieve something in a shorter period of time. I was 23, I'm running the photo department at L magazine. I'm a badass in anybody's book. And then when I knew that that magazine now was a magazine that my mother would have on her coffee table 
at long last, right? Remember, I'm the loser. I'm the dumb one. I'm 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 the bane of her existence. So I think that when I saw that for the first time that she that she now was proud of me, now I knew I could walk away from it. Good for you. Good for you. Okay, so what did you do then? I decided I needed to do something adventurous that was really going to push me out of my comfort zone and uh, and do something I always wanted to do, have an adventure that I've always been too afraid to do. Okay. And so I thought, hmm, I'm going to go to America. Okay, and here you are. And here I am. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been in America ever since? Yeah, I went originally for the year abroad that just kind of never ended because, <laughs> you know, I, I, I choose Los Angeles, Jeff, because Los Angeles to me is like the city of misfits. And I say this in a very, very loving way. The city of misfits in the sense that you think if you don't belong anywhere and you come here, because nobody else belongs here either, and that somehow makes everything <laughs> magically fit together. <laughs> Wonderful. It's so huge. I uh, I went to LA a few years ago, and I remember flying over, and we just kept on flying over it. This place is huge. So beautiful place. I really enjoyed my time there. So you're in Los Angeles then, and... Your year extends. So do you carry on with photography or do you do something else there? So um, I first went to Key West and I lived on a houseboat as an au pair with no so, water. So Key West is the Florida Keys, right? Florida Keys, yes. Okay, that's the other side of the country. That's the other side of the country, right. uh, a place that I am still very, very fond of. And I knew that I needed to get off this like L trip on the high fashion and the, you know, I mean, let's face it. When you talk about fashion, how important can something be if it changes twice a year? But you can't really say that when you work in a fashion magazine. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> Once again, I don't think I was very popular, Jeff. I don't know why this kept happening to me. But I I realized that my career had come to a dead end. When you're a photo editor, you're a photo editor. You may be a senior photo editor, but maybe you'll be a director of photography. But that's it. There is no other, you know, there is no evolution mm -hmm. of your career. That's it. And I just didn't want to be in something for the rest of my life. You know, I felt like I was at the, like after L, where was I going to go to Vogue? And after mm -hmm. Vogue, where would I want to go to after that? I mean, the, the, that is the top of the, mm -hmm. the, the hill. So that was that. And so when I left, I needed to go to a place where I could land and, and just like, go like, who am I? What am I doing what am I doing it for? Why don't I like myself? Where's my life going? You know, kind of like these like mm. hard questions. And so I had friends in Key West. My One of my editors had a sister that lived in Key West who had a friend who uh, was a single dad, lived on a houseboat. And that's where I went. And I made like, I think, 50 bucks a week. And I stayed there for about four months. It was one of the best times of my life. Yeah, no responsibilities, no expectations, just... Leave me alone. 
Just let me discover. Yes, that was pretty much it. Okay. The liking yourself bit. How did we put that right? I think that the more I learned in life and now looking at what I know now and working with people as a consultant, as a coach, as a strategist, I actually find that that is a very, very common thing that a lot of people don't like themselves. And that at the end of the night, you know, is that voice in your head that then as you lay in bed goes, I, I can't believe you said something so stupid or why did you do that? Or that was completely unnecessary. Why did you eat that? Why did you drink that? Why did you call that person? Why did you, you know, cut your, I mean, it's like this perpetual voice that constantly just cuts us down. And there was a part where I knew that that was not good, that that was detrimental and that was not the secret to success. As a matter of fact, it is the opposite. You can be successful when you despise yourself, but you're not going to find success and joy. And so if, like Princess Leia says in Star Wars to Han Solo, money is all you want, then money shall be all you get. But if you want something more than money, or something more than recognition, which is shallow, if it's not about you, but the position that you're in, your power position, it doesn't solve the problem that you have in the first place, which is you want to be successful so you are someone, so you can be independent and you can be yourself and you can tell other people to buzz off, basically. Mm. But if you don't like yourself, then you're back in the dependency of that vicious cycle because you still need to be liked. And so you try to be more successful because if, you, if you're even more successful, then people eventually must get it that you got it going on. And they just look and you're like, yeah, you know, person successful and making money and got a good job, but ugh, I don't want to hang out with her. And then, then this journey begins and says, why is that? Why am I so angry and frustrated inside? Why am I... Why am I not happy with being a photo editor at Elle magazine? Why am I not happy with at 23, whatever, making 60 grand um, and having a job that most people would kill for? But I, it meant not much. And that's when the journey on the inside became. That's when I started to look into spiritual teachings, doing yoga and um, trying meditation, listening to tapes and self-improvement because I was definitely searching for the meaning of life at 23, no less. At 23, goodness. So do you like yourself now? I love myself. That's the answer we wanted, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I meet lots of successful people and many are, and I choose my words carefully, unfulfilled. And I love the word you used earlier about this dependence and and people become dependent and you know i meet people and it, it doesn't matter what you say they're wired to disagree for some reason and then there's this self-loathing and i and i think what why are you doing this to yourself and it's it's a journey they have to travel isn't it it is so 
you're questioning not only do I like myself, do I love myself, you're also questioning the meaning of life, which is something deeper. So let's travel this journey for a little while then. So you're at 23, you don't like yourself, you certainly don't love yourself, you're in a job where you are unfulfilled, is this it? And you begin searching for the meaning of life. How long was your journey before you realised, hey, I'm actually quite a nice person, I do like myself, and what happened? I, I think this is a, is a, is a perpetual, never-ending journey in life to constantly keep working on yourself and finding these pieces. I think the hard work probably was, was um, figuring out, Jeff, why I had been dealt the cards that I've been dealt with, right? I think that's what we struggle with. So we we sit there and we say, the amount of adversity that I already had to go through by the time I was at that point, right? So I had learned I can survive on my own. I had learned that I can I can take a lot of really hard hits and I can still be standing and I can still be a pretty good person. But I needed to get to a point where I would wake up in the morning or I would go to bed at night and I wouldn't spend that hour in bed just 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 hating myself for everything that I did. And that's when you start examining where's this voice even coming from, right? Is this even my own voice? Yeah. And to no surprise, it's the voice of my mother, right? Because it is that perpetual program yeah. that you've been listening to while you were growing up of not being good enough, making mistakes, not being perfect. Um my mother had this idea that to the outside, everything needed to look good. And we were not allowed to talk about anything other than that. But everything that went on behind the scenes was a secret. And so you grow up carrying a secret of a miserable relationship of your parents with a hostile environment at home and you're not allowed to ever say anything because you're dependent and it would make your life even worse. So now that you're on your own and you don't have these constraints anymore, the constraints are still there because that is the, 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 that's the chains you've been put in when you were yeah. a child. And so finding what the chains are, understanding what that means until you finally are able to figure out how in the world am I going to still be somebody with knowing that I have these chains and this is the story. And then I start repeating the story. Then I... You know, I come to Los Angeles and I find and marry a man that resembles my mother. And then, you know, then I go into this crazy, crazy 13-year hardship. So, you know, now I'm in Key West. I, I come to Los Angeles. I knew I eventually had to leave Key West and start my real life. I mean, I love Key West, but I remember... In Key West, you know, I was helping out on Sunset. I, you know, for anybody who's ever been in, in Key West, there's a 
Mallory Square, which is sunset by the locals, where a lot of the artists uh, exhibit their wares, their T-shirts and their handmade crafts. And you get psychic readings by Solaya, who is still to this day my friend. And, um, you know, so that's the community I was in. And even they were like, you can't stay here. You, you, we, we know you have something else to do. You need to go. And so I left and I went to Los Angeles, found a job as an artist representative here in Los Angeles. And, you know, and figured out that I really needed to give myself a lot of time to just experience life and figure out how do I make friends? How do I, how do I, how do I, how do I exist? And I found, I found it very difficult. I can imagine. So we've gone from 23 years old, earning 60 grand a year to, I'm not doing this. I'll go the other side of the country, Key West, and then I'll earn $50 a week and to be left alone to see if I can find myself. You don't find yourself, but you know you need to. And people are saying, you have to leave. You can't stay here. I don't know what movie is that from, but it reminds me of something. It'll come to me. <laughs> so then you go. Yeah. 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 So then yeah. you go from the East Coast yeah. over to the West Coast, not to Miami or anything like that. You go over to the other side of the country to do, I mean, what is in your mind at this stage now? And you're on your own, I guess, at this stage. Yeah, yeah. I've been by myself the entire time. So yeah, yeah. I... You know, I was handed over to a gentleman who was a manager in some dingy apartment in Venice. And I, you know, uh, he gave me uh, a, a spot to land for like a week, which was which was great. And then I found a room for five hundred dollars in in, you know, uh, as a, a roommate in a house in West L.A. I bought a car for five hundred dollars, an old beat up Dodge. Uh, that constantly overheated and and then I was looking for a job because I needed to make some money and uh, and support myself and I you know and that's how I found a job as an artist representative. Okay so you're an artist representative now what does that involve and where did that journey take you? So I started with a company called Zenobia and they to this day do hair makeup and styling for um for still photography television movies and so my job was to help these artists to get job and show portfolios and and uh, get the word out and promote new artists that we were taking on and then in a short period of time i started a photographer representation business that you know he had always wanted to expand on and so then i was responsible for representing photographers under under his his brand and took on about five or six photographers that i then represented so what was the photography field at this stage then um it was we had somebody who was doing architecture and interior and then we had um a couple people that were in people lifestyle very california style swimwear i remember you know we we were photographing cameron diaz back then when she was a model and yeah, it's a tough job huh <laughs> yeah it was it was you know and then you have a bunch of guys with six packs coming through your office and beautiful women i mean yeah somebody's got to do it though yeah 
Tough job, huh? Yeah. So had uh, <laughs> had you the found endless suffering? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so by this stage, had you found your style with photography? I was actually doing less and less photography at that time because it was less about me doing the photography, but really doing the business side of thing more and more and more. So at that time, I almost stopped doing photography. Uh, certainly nobody paid me at that point to take any pictures. And I became the business behind the creative side of of life with specifically photographers at that point. And oh. I loved it. I mean, it, it gave me the best of everything because I could use my photography experience. I could use my experience with a magazine. I could use my experience with everything that I've learned and I could be, you know, I could make, make stuff work. Mm-hmm. And I was in charge. I think one of the reasons, you know, if I really think about it, I didn't think about it until just now as I'm talking with you about this, maybe one of the things that I didn't like about photography being the photographer is that there was still a dependency on somebody else. But if I ran the business, I was the boss. And I think that's what I really wanted. Knowing you, I can believe that completely. (laughs) (laughs) Epiphany! (laughs) Okay, so at what point then did you have your own photography company? I got laid off. Uh, So... You know, so then at at this point, now we are in the year uh, 1991. Uh, So, you know, we started 90, 91. There was a lot of stuff going on in Los Angeles. There were, um, you know, fires, floods, riots. That's when Rodney King happened. And we saw a lot of civil unrest and 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 things happening here in 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 Los Angeles and the economy tanked and because of the economy tanked you know not unlike what's happening right now the dissatisfaction and the um emotional state of people is very high and they have very short tempers and fuses so that's what was happening and so he just couldn't afford to run the photography division anymore he you know he cut the fat he trimmed the fat and said you know you're on your own take it do whatever you want, uh, but I cannot, I cannot, um, I cannot support you anymore. At that point, I had met my then husband, and who was a phenomenal man with only two flaws. He was a pathological liar and an alcoholic, none of which I figured out until I was married and pregnant. Actually, I didn't figure out that I was an alcoholic until many, many, many years later. And um, now I am being laid off. I'm pregnant while I'm being laid off in 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 this in this whole mess. And now I have to figure out in a recession. As I'm a new mom, in a very quickly, very fast deteriorating relationship with a 12-year-old stepson that was a difficult teenager on how to run a business, be a mother, figure out if I can be in this relationship while everything is falling apart. And that's when it began, the big adversity journey of my life. Okay. I'm, I'm just going to let you talk now then. 
So, <laughs> I, I mean, you, you, you've set that up and I'm thinking, where on earth do I begin to question and unravel this? So I've decided I'm not going to. I'm just going to let you unfold it. So, Well, how about, how about we let Earth, uh, we, we let planet, planet Earth unravel it because now it's the year 1992 I just had, you know, had my baby. We are, we are, we we're, we're kind of just trying to figure this out. I have a little office on Melrose Avenue, and you know, I, I took the photographers with me. I have a little bit of business. I, you know, I mean, I mean, we're scraping by 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 pennies, and then there's a big earthquake in Los Angeles. Okay, and it's like in the middle of the night. And it shakes so violently for over a minute that you go, this is it, I'm going to die. This is it, right? Things are exploding, they're falling, stuff is crashing. You're under the dining table with your newborn and your 12-year-old, your completely useless husband, uh, who is... It was just like going like, oh, what, what was going on? I'm, and I get German drill sergeant. Everybody wake up. Get on the dining table. You take the baby, nanny. Sean, where are you? Bring the cat. You know, everybody. And so we're sitting all under the table. And then I'm going like, so. As now, I know I'm in trouble. Because this was a big earthquake. You go, if this would have been the last day of my life, what would I have done differently if I would have known this is the last day of my life? And that's when I said, I'm not going to spend another day of my life with this person. Not one. And that's when I decided I was going to get a divorce. And so that's how I became a single parent and um, running a business with a very insta instable and mad, mean man, angry, that I only found out many years later that he was an alcoholic. Well, now it explains, you know, all the stupid stuff, the excessive toothbrushing and the gum disease, right? And the constant gargling and the mysterious disappearances for hours at a time where I couldn't find him. And, you know, and he just had to do stuff and errands and I wasn't allowed to ask. Um, but but none of that, I, I couldn't figure any of this out. I mean, I'm from bloody Germany, right? I'm coming from a middle-class family. Everybody I've ever known there, when they said they were going to do something, they did it. I didn't know that people existed <laughs> that say shit, and then they don't do it. Uh, <laughs> Call me protected. I, I, I should not laugh, should I? I should not laugh. So... <laughs> Uh, okay, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that 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 I was shocked. I'm like, well, you know, he was an actor. Yeah. Uh, actually, he said that he he was uh, he was an an agent at William Morris. He did work at William Morris, but he was the driver. <laughs> Good drove. <laughs> wow. Who drove the agents okay. at William Morris? You know, but but. Uh, so 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 it just it just kept on it just kept going and going and going going so anyway so so now here we are I'm going through the divorce I'm finding a place to live by myself that is going into foreclosure because I don't have money 
you know, so I, I, I managed to live there for a couple months. And then we were served a notice that we were <clears throat> evicted because we clearly weren't paying rent. We were paying rent to the person that was letting it go in foreclosure so that I had a place. And then my nanny, who had gone back to Germany after the earthquake, realized that she didn't want to be in Germany anymore. And then she came back. And so her parents bought her that place that I was living in. And so now she is my nanny, my landlord. And uh, we, you know, now at least I have a place to live. And I, and I'm, I'm able to, I'm able to somehow survive. And then I'm just in this crazy journey of adversity where every time you make a step forward, something happens. Um, you know, I have photographers that left that violated the contract, didn't pay me my commission fee for the transition period before they went somewhere else. I was going through fires, floods, earthquake, riots. Um, and then, and then I got this business in a long, long, hard journey to finally be about a million dollar business. And I was producing still photography shoots. I had clients, Wrangler, Levi's, Mercedes-Benz, BMW. I was the go-to person in Los Angeles for all the cool companies that wanted to produce here. I had made a name for myself. I was killing it. Uh, my photographers brought in money. We were shooting you know, Massimo to Hot Brazil. We were you doing um, magazines. I mean, we 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 really had a good good little business. So let, let me let me just rewind a little bit then. <clears throat> so your careers advice teacher, who said you should be a roofer, mm -hmm. you said, "Hey, <laughs> I want to be a photographer," and she goes, "Lots of applicants." Lots and, and there are lots and lots of photographers. So how did you get from the position where you were now? Desperation, I'll say. Destitute. And to build up to be the go-to person in L.A. I can't let you just drop that and say, oh, yeah, I just did that. So <laughs> you should know me by now. So how did you do that? You know, there was a there was a moment. Uh, Levi's was my client, and when I asked Levi's, I said, "How did you find me?" They just said, "Oh, somebody said call Beata in Los Angeles," and I had no idea where that came from or who had said what. But I figured if 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 I could get jobs just by having my name uh, in Los Angeles, and somebody could find me. That's I better be putting that in my business name. So my business name was Beata Works. Oh, nice. So that anybody who was looking for Beata in Los Angeles could find me. And so that's how it began. And then once I worked with one person, then their competitor said, wow, this is really good. Who are they using? And then, and then Wrangler called and then Wrangler said to me, well, but if you work for Levi's, then you can't work for Wrangler. And I'm like, well, that's where you are wrong. Because if I work for both of you, I'm the only person 
in all of Los Angeles who can make sure you're not going to the same locations and you're not using the same models. I love that. Clever you, huh? Totally work. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And that's what and that's what the sales point was. The sales point was I'm doing all of these. I can help you to figure out who's using whom and uh, make sure that you don't have that surprise that can cost you your job. Because if you have a lead guy on the Levi ad and then you have a lead guy on the Wrangler ad and it's the same guy, that's a problem. Mm, for sure. So I understand how it grew. So let's come to the point now. This business, you're the go-to person in LA and then... Then, <laughs> then what happens? And then there comes a day where you're out, you're producing, you're working really hard, you know, and you come back to your office, your employee sits there and you go like, I don't know what the heck is wrong with her, but something is going on. And I fired her because you know, it's just like, I don't know what it was, it, you know, but it kept going and going and going and then something was wrong. Next thing I know, I'm not getting paid by my clients. This isn't the photography clients. And when I called the client, I said, hey, you know, this invoice is overdue. They say, oh, no, no, we, we paid. But they told us that you were withholding money and so we paid the invoice to them directly. I said, who is them? The photographer and my employee had started their own company, oh, which was dear. my company without me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then what happened? I sued them because I'm German. <laughs> I, I was wronged. I must be right. And I didn't know any better, Jeff. He didn't know any different. <laughs> I did not know any different. So I, I went ahead and I sued them both. And I was now in battle in this lawsuit. What I didn't know about lawsuits, of course, is that the retainer of the $20,000 only gets you one letter. And then once that complaint is written and filed, they're going to have to respond. And then your attorney needs to write another letter. And then they're going to respond. And then there's going to be another letter. And so I went from having this great business with now spending a lot of money on an attorney. 10,000, 20, 30, 40, 50. So, you know, before I know it, I'm in debt $130,000 with just these fees. Because remember, that took down my photography business. Because with that battle going on, I took my eye on the ball on the other things. And then as you have this negative momentum, the other photographers were like, well, we're really not sure that we should be here. This, you know, it's kind of like not an environment that we want to be in. Um, you know, you're not as good as you used to be, you know, and so other people left as a result of it. So I lost the whole photography business as a result of this. And now there is a moment where I'm going like, well, you know, 
I'm a fighter. I'm a survivor. I'll make it work because we are having production season. Levi's on the book. Wrangler's on the book. BMW's on the books. You know, I have a half a million dollars coming in beginning September. That's when production season starts, when it gets too cold in Europe. And then everybody comes here to produce between September and March. And then there is the 9th of September. September 11th. 2001, I guess. 2001. Mm-hmm. So what happened on that date? It, it was over. In 24 hours, everything was over. There was not one person in the world that was going to go on a plane after these two planes just hit the World Trade Center and would be crazy enough to fly to Los Angeles to produce here. Everything got canceled in 24 hours, one after the other. I was out. It was, it was over. Man. Okay, so what was going on in your head then? A lot of one-syllable words. Yeah. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the, I cannot believe this, what the heck just happened here. And you, you are, you're in the part of where you start to realize what this means. Um, you now know that you need to rebuild. You know that you are out of money. And uh, you know you're in trouble. I, I knew I was in trouble. And so I had to put on a poker face because I was still in this lawsuit. And this lawsuit wasn't just against these two photo- this photographer and my former employee. What had happened is that he was covered under errors and omission by one of the largest insurance companies in the United States because he was insured through a group photographer insurance through one of the photographer associations, which covers errors and omissions. And because they were insuring thousands of photographers, they had to make sure that they were not going to lose this case against a photographer cheating an agent because it would have been case law. And then others like me would have had a case to sue photographers for misappropriation of trade secrets and theft and all that good stuff. So they were finally offering to settle. And that was then, you know, around, around Christmas. And when it was all said and done, I paid the attorney. I paid my debt. I mean, that was a, a six-figure settlement amount. I had nothing, like literally zero. I remember going to the flower mart downtown Los Angeles, picking up the flowers for my attorney and driving them down to Long Beach and putting them in her office. And then I looked at my bank account and I'm going like, there's nothing in here. And so I had to start all over again. And so a year later, after all of this happened, I had to start from scratch all over again. Now I'm in a mad fight, Jeff. Now I'm, now I'm, um, you know, figuring out how the world am I going to get into into something else? I better come up with a new business because this is never going to happen to me again. I will never have somebody have this much power. Uh, back to the story of my life, right? Indeed, you know, yeah, yeah. Needing needing being control, and I 
looked at the photographer that did this to me. And he was an interior and architecture photographer. And we had started to sell a lot of these architecture and interior photos, you know, so magazines would call and books would call and say, hey, we are looking for an image on a house with a white picket fence. What do you have? And then I'd go, you know, being having been a photo editor, go through the photos and I'll find photos and then we'll send photos and then I'll negotiate the fees. And, and so... I built up that business, but I had learned a lot of lessons in the in the meantime. So I realized that I needed to go after A-listers right away. I wasn't going to bother my time with B or C. I was going to go straight to A, the top photographers in the field. And I said, this is what I'm going to do. And they're all like, well, who are you? Why are you doing this? You know, we don't even know you. You have no track record. And I came up with a value proposal. I said, look, all of your stuff is on four by five, you know, on the on the large format cameras. Yep. And we are now going through an age of digitization. I can tell you right now that that what you're doing, sending these images out, is going away. Nobody, nobody wants that. It's too dangerous. Everything is going digital. I'm going to digitize your archive for future earnings. So it was a no, no risk proposal for them because I was going to carry the cost. I flew to New York. I went to photographers' studios. I picked up boxes and I took those boxes and flew them back here and then sent them to India to be digitized. And that's brought me deeper into debt. Of course. Because now I'm making these massive investments to get all these archives digitized so I could sell them. But I didn't have any money. And I didn't have, you know, like licensing fees, what, a couple hundred dollars here or there. It's it's hardly enough to pay for thousands of dollars. Mm. I mean, I got it reimbursed eventually, but I first had to make the money in the sales so that I could could take the money out and get myself reimbursed. Great model, but, you know, if you have no money, that's a tough one. And so now I'm getting into debt again and maxing out credit cards, line of credits, I'm now borrowing money to pay interest on borrowed money. I have a great idea, but it's just not picking up fast enough. And that's when I I realized, you know, I, I better be I better be making some trips here and, and dialing in for dollars. So I fly to Germany to visit my dad and to go to an industry conference and to drum up some business and see if I can get some licensing agreements. At this time, we had started slowly but surely to get a celebrity story here and there because some of these photographers were, you know, because they're A-listers and A-listers work with other A-listers. So they work with the great architects and the great interior designers and they get hired by celebrities to photograph their homes. So when I got a home story... That's when we started to really make money very quickly, very easily. But it just wasn't enough because I'm still building all of this up. So now I'm in Germany, Jeff. I get a call. My dad had a car accident, presumably a stroke. And my dad's 70. So I get back to my dad. I was in Milan. And they take him back out for another scan, another scan, another scan. Clearly something's, something's happening. And then the doctor said, 
Give all this pancreatic cancer. It has metastasized everywhere in his body. And this was a tumor in his brain that caused this stroke-like experience. Mm-hmm. Your dad's going to die. Yeah. Um, I fly back to the United States. I come back to Germany a couple weeks later because, you know, this, this is like six weeks. This is how quickly this goes. And now, now we are putting my dad to rest, my fan, my supporter, while not always physically there, but always supported me. You know, he did make good on that promise. No money. Um, now I have to pay for funeral on money I don't have. And and I sit there and we are at this place in Nether Bavaria, Jeff. And you overlook this whole valley. And, you know, it's just like in Bavaria, it's so beautiful. And, and you know, it, the mountains in the background and this Baroque church. And it's like bright yellow. And we put my dad on the ground and my phone rings. And now my office calls me and says, we've just been served a notice. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) People are wondering why I'm laughing and saying, Jeff, how could you possibly laugh? I I wouldn't be with anyone else. It's just you. (laughs) So you're at a funeral, your dad's funeral. You put him in the grounds. My, My first question is, why have you got your phone with you and why is it switched on and why take a call? Well, probably because I'm in financial trouble and yeah. I'm, I'm holding it together at the seat of my pants. And, um, you know, and uh, I'm, 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 I'm the business owner and I have like one person that, you know, uh, I, I'm trying to train to help me who needs my help, who cannot run this show by herself. And I, you know, and, and yeah, and the phone rings and it's okay. like, we've been, I, I didn't own the house, but it was a new landlord and he sent us a notice to vacate uh, to quit yeah. or vacate because we were running an office out of the house, which the previous owner had verbally permitted me to do, but it wasn't in the lease. Mm-hmm. There you go. So that, that, uh, that movie line comes back. You can't stay here. You have to go. You can't stay here. You have so, to go. Okay. So where does this take us to now? Um, I fell to my knees. I raised my fist and I yelled at God. And I said, if you have a plan, this would be an excellent time to fill me in at this very moment. Because this makes no more sense. This is ridiculous. It's like, what bloody else can you pile on here? That's, I mean... Seriously. And I surrendered. I'm like, okay, let's let's take a look here. Um, I have no money. I'm deep in debt. I'm $135,000 in debt. I cannot pay anymore. I have no more access to cash. I have to move on money I don't have. I have to run this business with money I don't have. I have to pay myself with money I don't have. I have to send my daughter to school on money I don't have. I'm screwed. So now there is literally nothing else I can do because I felt I had really done everything. 
And I surrendered and I flew back and I said, if anybody has a plan, this would be a great time. I had written though, in my desperation, a letter to the president of the United States. And Jeff, I wrote a letter because my former mother-in-law was a pain in the behind. Why don't you write a letter to the president of the United States? He's your president after all. If anybody can help you, it's the president of the United States. Why didn't you write? Did you write your letter to the president of the United States? He is your president. You know, the pre, that's what presidents are for. They're there to help people. Fine. Fine. I'm going to write the damn letter. So you and I will never have to talk about this again. Because it is idiotic. Why would anybody write a letter to the president? Everybody knows that that goes nowhere. Did you write the letter? I wrote the letter. I get a letter from the White House. So who was the president at this stage? Uh, George W. Bush. Okay. So you get a letter from the White House. House. Yeah. The president sends his best wishes. (laughs) 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 Uh, Sure he does. Uh, Of course the president never saw the letter. But this letter was sent to the Small Business Administration and not some underling, but to the Deputy Chief Director because it comes from the White House. Next thing I know, I get a call from the Deputy Chief Director, Lorenzo Flores, a name that I will never forget for the rest of my life. And he calls me and says, why didn't you call me directly? Why'd you have to write the president? <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, then he says, why don't you come on in? We'll talk about this. Okay. And so I came in. I had a business plan that I had written and printed. And I had my portfolio with all these beautiful images in the books that we were published in. And I showed it to him and I said, Mr. Flores, this is what I do. And he looks at me and he says, I'm going to put in what you put in. And for the first time, I had hope in a very, very long time. And so they helped me to restructure my business plan to get the financials in place. They came up with a plan on how to take the $135,000 in debt and go for a restructure of the existing debt that I clearly had been paying into a 10-year fixed loan. That freed up my line of credit. And that got me to break even three months later. Cool. This is how close it was. Okay, so the letter that you wrote to George W., what what was in your letter? It's like, what the heck did you say? Yeah, what did you say? Yeah, I, I, I basically said, look, you know, you always talk about the small business being the backbone of the American economy. And from where I stand, it is not true. You know, I, I've, I've done everything by the book. You know, I paid my taxes. I, I'm you know, paying my business licenses. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a single mom. I pay for everything. My daughter goes to school. Um, I do whatever I can, but I'm not making it. You know, September 11, you know, whatever, I'm, I'm not making it. I need help. And I do not know what else to do. Well, it's wonderful that they picked it up. So your loans have been restructured. You now have a line of credit. 
Thanks to George W. And Lorenzo Flores. And then, now what happens? Do we have some good news now? Well, the story turns on a dime. So now, now, now that my, my line of credit is open, I have cash to make it through the next couple of months. We were... The step from bankruptcy to pro, to to break even was three months. This we we talked about a time span of ninety days. This is how close it was. And um, what I have not gotten is I would not I would have not made it another ninety days, but I did. And then we were able to secure a contract with one of the largest image distributors in the world with Getty Images, and which is also a really great story. I have to tell you the story because I was like, I was trying Jeff on these industry conferences. I was trying to get these meetings and I couldn't get the meetings. You know, I'm just this, this tiny little, you know, company out of Los Angeles that does these architecture interior images, you know, what the heck, you know, who needs those anyway. And, um, but I was persistent. And so I figured at these conferences where these people would go, I saw that all the men would go to the bar after the conference. And so I'm going like, well, if they go to the bar, I need to go to the bar. And I found that very few women go at the bar. Well, I can tell you why women don't go to the bar because men get drunk and they do a lot of stupid stuff and they say a lot of stupid stuff. I mean, not all of them, but many. I mean, I'm sure you met one or two in your life. I've met one or two, yes. And so I figured that there was a, an advantage I had. Uh, so I came up with what I call in my book, Happy Woman, Happy World, the Cinderella rule. The Cinderella rule is you always dress up for the bar. Three drink maximum in bed by midnight and you walk to your room alone. That's a good rule. And when you do that, because men don't have a three drink maximum, at least most men don't that Mm -hmm. I met at this conference because they're there to blow off steam, they're away from their wives, you know, they're away from their regular lives, you know, they're with the buddies, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> so they would tell me stuff and they would find out I'm a really cool person. And then I kept my mouth shut about what was said, what I heard. So I was one of them. And now suddenly with that reputation of mine building, that was kind of a cool person to hang out with. Now I started getting these meetings. So I'm finally at Getty Images. I'm finally getting the meeting. I'm finally flying to Seattle. I'm sitting in this room with like six people. And, you know, they're used to these, these deals with multiple millions of images in their collections. And they said, so, Beate, we're so glad we finally got to this point. How many images can you give us? And I said, 453. <laughs> so many already. <laughs> So let, we we need to put this into context because so, someone who does not understand the world of stock photography, uh, four hundred and fifty three might sound a lot of photographs, but in reality, what are they expecting? What kind of number? Anywhere number between one and five million. Yeah. And you have four hundred and fifty three. <laughs> <laughs> I had 453 and, 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 and they kind of were laughing, you know, they had the same sort of incredulous look that uh, you just had there for a second. <laughs> um, and they go like, 
WTF? What, why are we, why are we even meeting with you? And I said, okay, here's the deal. I said, I work with the A-listers. My guys do not need to take tens of thousands of images. They take one. The shot. That's the cover of Vogue, Casa. That's the leading shot for Julian Moore in her home story. That is Francis Ford Coppola's estate. That is, you know, Terry Hatcher, Simon Baker. I mean, it was the who's who. I said, that's what we do. I said, we don't. I said, if, if, if you thought that I'm coming here because you need like stuff in your database, last time I checked, you had enough stuff in there. You need things that sell. But as I'm building this with the data you give me, I will build you the collection that will actually outsell any other collection. And then they go like, oh, bold, brazen, convincing. Let's do it. Oh, excellent. Good for you. Good for you. Mm -hmm. So where did it go from there? From 453? Yeah. And then I became, you know, this contract was the first first time I was able to pay my bills because now I was making enough to cover my overhead with this one contract alone. And because, of, you know, they distributed all over the world. And then I'm break even three months later, 18 months later, I'm the world leader in my category. And I am selling into 79 countries in the world. Everybody knows we are the go-to place for celebrity at home stories. We, you know, we have the who's who um, home story, and that is what attracted the Bill Gates company to us because they had bought a collection that was a celebrity portraiture collection, and they wanted to expand that and grow it, and they couldn't. And so they were looking what else was out there, and they said, well, can you tell us how you do it? And I said, absolutely not. If you want to know what I do, you're going to have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And then they said, how much do you want? And then I told them my multiple seven-figure amount. And then they said, okay. And that's how I sold my business to a privately held company by Bill Gates 18 months after the worst moment of my life. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yay! So we got there at last. Wonderful. So now it's I'm free of all this desperation and dependency. Now I've got some money and money gives me choice. So what did you do with your life then? Now you've got choice. And the first thing is I did, I bought a house so nobody could ever throw me out again. Yeah. And... (laughs) which I'm sure you're super surprised about. I uh, called my daughter and I told her that she could, you know, go study whatever she wanted anywhere in the world. That was my promise to her. And I'll throw in an extra year. And she said, whatever mom and hung up. And, um, you know, and then I thought about what I was going to do. And I, I had to run the integration for the company, which I loved. And then they made me an offer to come on as a senior director of global entertainment, which I accepted. That's when I realized how screwed up 
American companies sometimes are, and the discrepancy between how women are treated, how men are treated, how um, you know what the culture is for these types of companies. Met some very smart people that I'm still in touch with today. Um, quit the job. Really got interested into in consulting and leadership and wrote my book, Happy Woman, Happy World, to talk about what happens to women leaders on if you are a woman leader, that you have to have a whole set of different strategies than men do. You just do. Okay, so let's have a look at this book then. So why did you write it? Who is it for? What what does this achieve? And why do you think you were the person to write it? There was a point, uh, Jeff, when I was sitting in a conference as I was trying to figure out how to be a business owner. And I heard a woman speak. She keynoted this event. And I listened to her and I sat in the audience awestruck. And I'm like, one day I'm going to have a story to tell. But I knew that in order to be on stage and you're a speaker, you have to have a story to tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That has to be something you're saying. And then the day that I had a story to tell had come because I had the credibility and I had the history and the story and the adversity and the rags to riches. I mean, it's a very classic rags to riches story with lots of adversity and overcoming and perseverance, resilience and all that good stuff. And so the day just came where it was time to take authority and to and to speak from about something that I knew how to do, which is to survive, which is to make something out of yourself, which is to like yourself, which is to figure out how to become someone other people liked, how to stand your ground, how to be true to yourself. And and then I had to for and and because I like business and creativity formulating that into a formula was relatively easy for me because that's what I naturally do. So I wrote the book for women, specifically working women, to share the idea that in order to achieve what we really want to achieve, full equality in everything, women first need to figure out how to get along with other women and stop tearing each other down and getting and and getting clear on how it is set up because the entire system is completely broken the system is set up for women to take other women out so that men don't have to deal with them as a competitor and men encourage that because if women take each other out and then I don't have to deal with 50% of the competition why would I let them let them just do their thing while they're not while they're not watching we advancing and then now what we see is that the system is not working for men anymore either because they're now realizing that that really is hardly the road to happiness either but that's a whole different story but that's not what I wrote the book I wrote the book for women to say I tell you why you're not at equality because of the crap you just said to Susie. And you know, when I left, when I left this company, one of the, you know, my employees that I had brought in 
you know, one of them was terrorized by the woman that had been promoted to manager to such an extent that she had a full-on nervous breakdown and had to be in, in, in care for six months. Because, you know, this, this, this woman was such a, such a terrible manager. So, so I wrote this book to tell women, if you want to be successful, it's on and it starts with you. And here is what you need to do with yourself. And here's how you handle certain situations. Okay. So is there going to be a second book called Happy Man, Happy World? Um, I was contemplating about writing a second book about a new business code, which I think is, is, is desperately needed right now. I think the conversation of women leadership is excluding men. The conversation of black excludes white. The conversation of Latin excludes other people. So I think all these pieces are very important, and I've certainly had lots of these conversations and, and talks about equality, diversity, inclusion. But the longer I do it, the more I learned, and I learned this from a gentleman by the name of Markle Margulis who wrote a book called 10X. And in his book, he says that whatever message it is, it has to be a message that everybody can buy into. If the message itself is controversial, you're not going to get the buy-in. And so when I looked at that and I said, he's absolutely correct. So I'm looking for this next book now where I want to have a message, Jeff, that everybody can say, I'm buying into that. And that, I think, is the true inclusion that we're really looking for is not the message that where we educate some people to strive to be better, but a message that everybody can buy into and wants to be a part of. Beautiful. I like that. So happy woman, happy, happy world. How to go from overwhelmed to awesome is the current book. So I can hear people shouting now, Jeff, Asuka, go on. How do we get the book? So, Bias, how, how, how do we get it? You go to happywomanhappyworld.com or Amazon and um, you get your audio version, your printed version, or your ebook. And um, that's it. It's very simple. It's a, it's a small book, it's a pocket sized book. I wrote it specifically that way because I wanted it to be small enough and light enough to go in a purse or to be left in the bathroom with short chapters so that certain other genders, while they were in the bathroom, had enough time to read a chapter at a time. Okay. I want to revisit your personality because you've been dealt lots and lots of blows. Um, lots. I, I lost count as we were going along and we've known each other for a while. But resilience is the thing. How do you keep on going? Because there, there are some points in life where you just have to. Early in your life as a 12-year-old, you're already on the brink of suicide. I know what that means, and that doesn't necessarily go away. And here you are, down on your knees, 
fists in the air, screaming. But you still stand up and you still walk away and you still fight. How did you do that? I have a core belief in life and that is the joke's not on me. It can't be. It is impossible. Literally, that's that was my guiding thought when I was going through all of that, Jeff, that I said it is virtually not comprehensible to me that at, after all of this, the whole story would go down and the story would end and then she went down in flames. So I, I came up with an idea and I said, I will not drown in a puddle. So, I like that. And this I, is, that's a great metaphor. I like that. It, it, right? Don't yeah, drown in a yeah, puddle. Yeah, absolutely. You're going to work so, hard to do that, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, and, and I think that sometimes we, 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 we look at what's in front of us and I'm challenging your listeners now to say, is the crap that you're looking at, is that even worthy to be declaring defeat over? Or is it a puddle? I mean, if it's an ocean, right? And we got like, we have these crazy storms in LA right now and we have 25, 35 foot waves. Now we're talking, but for a two foot wave, really? So, so that was one of the things where I, almost counterintuitively said, is this big enough for me to fail? I'm not going to fail over $10,000. I mean, $135,000, you know, when you don't have any income, that's a good chunk of, chunk of change. You know, if you declare bankruptcy at $135,000 of debt, everybody's going to go, yeah, you know, I kind of get that. Um, that, that that's, a big, that's a big chunk to get rid of. But for $10,000 or $20,000, come on, get real. That's not big enough. And... The second part of the resilience is that I learned to be very diligent on what I allowed myself to think about. So I would think about money only twice a month when I had to pay bills. And I completely eliminated thinking about money for the rest of the month because it was pointless, because I didn't have any. So I just needed to go through what I needed to do. And then twice a month when I had to pay bills, I had to figure out which check from which bank for 20% I was going to accept now so that I could last another two weeks. And then once that's done, that was done. And then I didn't think about that. So it was, the, it was, a, it was a hard discipline to keep myself very focused on not allowing myself to fall further into the despair because I had fought so hard to get out of it. That, that makes absolute total sense because I can imagine, by comparison, someone else might be thinking about money that they don't have the whole time. And you said, I'm only going to do that twice a month because the rest of the time it doesn't help me. So when those thoughts come, you just think, okay, I'm batting that away until the 20th or whatever your twice in the month were. So that, that's really good because what it did, it allowed you to focus on what you want and what you don't want. And that's been a pattern as I've listened throughout here is that 
when you were searching other people, you only went for A-listers. You didn't bother with the Bs and the Cs, and you knew what you wanted and put everything else aside. And they, they are absolute classic qualities of successful people and how successful people become successful. So they recognise the the thoughts that they cannot do anything about that will not help them. Some often think, will this help me or will it hinder me? Or some other words. I'll put that off and I'm just going to stay with the thoughts and the actions that will help me. And it does take a lot and a lot of discipline. And as I've been listening to your story, you can apply that to every single part of what you've done. Fascinating. Loved it. Yeah, I mean, if you put it like that, I think that that, that there is a very good takeaway from that. It is a discipline, a real hard discipline. If I were to continue to loop, or if your listeners who are probably going through some of these things themselves to some extent, if we allow ourselves to stay in the perpetual misery of the situation, we are only prolonging it. Because if my guiding thought is, is what I'm trying to do possible? The answer is yes. Why? Because somebody's already doing it. So if somebody else is doing it, then it is possible. Yes. So if it is possible, in theory, it should be possible for me too. So now I'm going to switch the question from can I to how can I? And that is the lifeline that gets you out of these troubling situations is to take the conversation, why is this happening to me? Life is so unfair to the, I got it. Um, that's a bummer. Embrace but, it. Yeah, absolutely. Embrace it. But, Jeff, but Jeff's doing it. If 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 Jeff if Jeff's killing it with his KPIs, I can I can kill it with my with my strategic consulting. If if he's a strategic consultant and he makes money and people listen to him and he came up with something that's so amazing and outstanding, now everybody's using it, then it's possible. I know Jeff, so therefore now it must be possible for me too. So I can come up with something. Yeah. Cool. I like. I like. Okay, the big question. This is the question that I ask of every guest. B8, Charlotte, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. What's the most important thing you have ever learned? Relationships are everything. That at the end of the day, un the relationship, and not just in the, in the trite part of, you know, treat people, golden rule stuff, but that you have to understand that the richness of relationships comes from your ability to understand different personality types and to see things that people are bringing that are not like you, which is the exact opposite of what most people do. They only try to surround themselves with people who are just like them. And then they don't ever learn anything. And then they are stuck in their own ways and they, are, uh, they don't have any other viewpoints. I am a certified Myers-Briggs practitioner for that reason that I really wanted to figure out what it is about these different personality types. And while there are certain types that 
I naturally am not drawn to. But I do find that if what I say is true, that I am a consultant and that I can help people to put strategies, blueprints, workflows, processes together so they can grow their authority and scale their impact, then that must be a promise that I can make to everyone. And if I take this promise very seriously, which I do, because as a company, our impact is measured by the impact that we help others make. So if I don't help you making your impact, I failed in my own vision in life. And we did this on purpose because we want everybody to recognize that our reason to exist is because we help other people to amplify their impact. And if I take relationships seriously and I say, what can I do better? Who can I be? How can I position this so that literally everybody feels included, that everybody can understand a complex strategy? You know, and I think you're probably in that boat a lot because KPIs, I mean, when you say KPIs, a lot of people probably already want to run to another island. Or, or, or catch a plane somewhere else because it's got like, oh, please don't, don't make me, Jeff, don't make me. And how do we take what we have learned through this adversity that, you know, and all the different experiences that we have, and we now know that other people go through this as well. How do we help people at different stops in their journey to take what we know and help them to amplify what they came here to do? That's the kind of relationship that I, that's my big lesson in life is to say, we spend so much time figuring out who we are, loving ourselves, figuring out who we are. And then we realize that all of it is um, in, 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 in relationship to other people. Because without the relationship to other people, there's very little of us. There's, you know, I, I think as I see this now very intensely is with my mother, who now is 87, has no friends, is pretty much alone all the time, has chosen to be the nice old lady with the occasional, you know, moment where she forgets that that's what she set out to do. And, and you know, the old version of her comes through. So it's it's very much still there. And you think, if a person like this leaves the planet, there is no resonance at all. Because that resonance is, I was here, I did what I needed to do. It was my life, but I didn't touch anybody. I didn't, I, di I cannot, there is no, no resonance in living in a different realm, right? I think that's what's really important to me, and this might sound super, super spiritual or, 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 or weird for some people, but the strategies and systems that I created for people and with people, the artificial intelligence, ethical framework I helped this woman to develop, the tutoring company that I helped to you know, reach more people, the, you know, people that are helping people with osteoporosis, people that are 
and medical aesthetics to help people feel beautiful. All these systems live long, live on after I'm not here anymore. There's a piece of that that still exists. And to me, that really matters. So that's why I say the relationships, but not just the relationship with people, but the results of the relationships with people and the resonance that that leaves. That's, that's I think, the most important thing in life, period. Sure. I think lots of that also comes from all the adversity you've had and the resilience. And you, you have a, a realization for what's important for you in the world. So if somebody's thinking, heck, I'm struggling, I need B8 on my team. How do we reach out to you? How do we get in touch with you? Call me. <laughs> <laughs> Write a letter to the president of the United yeah, States. Or, uh, one of those two options, yes. So so um, let's just say um, from the get-go, so I love to hear from, from your audience. So number one, Jeff's amazing. Um, if you like this podcast, please go wherever you listen to this podcast. Give it a five-star review, review, subscribe to it. And just share it with one person that maybe needs to hear something that we talked about today. Because this is a labor of love. Let's give some love back to Jeff because he's awesome. Having said that, my specialty really is around strategies, workflow systems, growth plans. Anything that has to do with how do I get from this moment to another moment. I work with a lot of big thinkers, visionaries, non-conforming, colorful people, which I love. And I help them to build growth plans, systems, and grow their authority, which are client attraction systems. So if any of this is worthy of a conversation, you can find me um, under Beata Chalette or The Growth Architect pretty much anywhere. You can go to my website, beatachalette.com. If you say, I must speak to her, go fill out uncoverysession.com and make sure you mention secrets of success because I'll be happy to gift seven of these uncovery sessions to your audience. Uh, just reach out. Let me know what's going on. We schedule a call. You can talk to me directly. If you are in business and you don't know what your blocker is, you can take my free quiz at growthblockerquiz.com. And another tool that we have, which is the base, the basis for everything is our airtight avatar, where we give away the piece of our strategy, helping you identify who your ideal client is. And we made that like a 15 minute thing. And it's a, you know, done with you. All you have to do is a pen and check mark the boxes and you'll, you'll get these avatars because as you can see, the idea is you got to get really clear who the people are that you want to connect with. And then you need to meet them with a solution that is right for them where they are at. And that's what we can help you with. Awesome. Clarity is everything. B.A., you're lovely friends. Beautiful. I love you. And for people listening, if you're going to contact her, mention me, mention Secrets of Success. And, well, she's said herself, the door will be open for you. Amazing. I mean, we've been friends, we've been friends for a few years, but I didn't know all of that stuff. So it's been wonderful 
wonderful to sit here and chat across the pond rather than sitting at a bar and getting drunk. Not that either of us would do that. <laughs> I mean, we still can. You we know? St- I we mean, still can. Yeah. <laughs> and we probably talk way longer than we've done today, but I, I've loved it. Thank you so much, PHLet. You are amazing. Thank you. And for you, the listener, thank you for listening to Secrets of Success. I hope the show has helped to ignite your passion to be a catalyst for action and giving you the fuel you need to realize your dreams. If you've enjoyed the show, please hit the follow button. And what Beata said, share it. That is the most important thing for us. It is a labor of love. We don't take sponsorship. We don't get paid. We're doing this for you. So, yes, he's showing a heart on the screen here. Thank you, thank you. So, there will be people struggling who this story of B8 Michael, well, if she can do it, I can do it too. And that's why we're here today. So, please share it, even if it's just with one person. So, go ahead right now, hit the follow button, leave a review, share. Let's see if we can really make a difference. On another note, I'm always looking for great success stories, even if there are 20 steps of adversity in there, like behave. So if you'd like to be a guest on the show or you'd like to nominate a guest, please contact me at our website at jeff-smith.com. I really would love to hear from you. B8, Shalette, you have been amazing. Thank you so much for today. That's all from me. Thank you for listening and have a great day.